Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, with a message titled, The Mission Begins. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, verses 19 to 31, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We've all heard the expression that someone stumbles out of the starting blocks. Now, when that happens in a race, most often the person that stumbles loses. But not if the race is a long-distance race. In that case, you could start badly and still eventually win the race. Now, that's important for all of us who make mistakes, who've sinned, who've performed badly at some part of our race. But we do well to remember that it's not how we begin the race, but it's how we finish the race that truly counts. See, many a child of God in service to our Lord has failed and has sinned. Peter denied he ever knew Christ. Abraham took his family to Egypt in a time of crisis and then denied to Pharaoh that Sarah was his wife. I mean, furthermore, some of the sins and errors are committed, you know, sometime down the path, not at the beginning. David committed adultery when he was well advanced as king of Israel. And what I'm about to say needs to be said with some care. I'm not saying that our sins don't matter because they do. We need to avoid all known sins, but we do sin. And we've been given the grace of repentance, but we need to fix our eyes on this truth. We may stumble out of the gate, but that doesn't mean we have to keep stumbling. We may stumble along the path, but we don't have to lie down and call ourselves a perpetual stumbler. It's not how you begin the race, it's how you end the race. And I say all of these things first so that we might be encouraged and that those who have failed might also be encouraged. You know, you can claim 1 John 1, 9. You you can confess your sins. You can renew your faith. Put your hope in Christ. You can get up and dust yourself off and lead a victorious life in Christ and for his glory. And I say these things so that we might understand that even the great Moses himself had difficulty finding his feet and willingly following the path that was marked out for him. And yet he ended so well. So let's track Moses' first faltering steps on God's mission for him. I mean, finally, as we've seen, he is submitted to God's call. He's going to go to Egypt, and he's going to do what God has called him to do. He's going to follow the path that's marked out for him. Exodus 4, 19 to 20. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hands. You know, there's a word of assurance that comes to Moses right at the beginning. All the men that seek your life are dead, and as is sometimes the case today, a new government can cancel out the criminal penalties imposed by a previous government. And Moses goes back knowing that he's not a hunted man. But it also needs to be said that Moses goes back to Egypt, and at this moment, he's turned his back on the life that he had enjoyed among the Midianites. You know, such is the nature of following God. It demands that we close the door to the past. Moses will never live among the Midianites again. He's now again an Israelite. That's going to be his only identity. He's closing the door on the past. Jesus himself said that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the next phase of his journey, I suspect, that God is speaking to him as he's now on the way back to Egypt. Exodus 4, 21 to 23. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And one has to imagine the thoughts that are going through Moses' mind. I mean, no doubt he's rehearsing what God had told him to do. And and no doubt he's now feeling the pressure of what is demanded of him. And so we have to assume either as he's walking or as he encamps for the night that God has come to him and he's reinforcing what he's to do. First, God adds something. Moses has been told to do three miracles to the elders of Israel, but then he is told that he is to repeat them before Pharaoh. That will not only affirm to the elders of Israel, but but also to Pharaoh, that Moses has come to Egypt in the name of the Lord. He's not come on his own initiative. And one has to think that Moses is now assured. God's going to be guiding him as he takes each step. He has up to this point been told that he is to take the elders of Israel with him, and then he is to demand to Pharaoh that Pharaoh allow Israel to go for an indeterminate period of time, And as to how he's to frame that demand, well, he doesn't yet know. I mean, perhaps he's walking back to Egypt and he's rehearsing the speech he's going to make there. But God comes to him and he tells him what to do. I have given you the power to perform three miracles. Do them before Pharaoh. And then comes a second piece of information Moses didn't yet have. Back in chapter 3, verse 19, he was told, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go until he is compelled by my mighty hand. So that's all that Moses knew. But now God fills in the details. The reason why he won't let Israel go is because God himself will harden his heart. Now, before we get into all the questions that so many of us have regarding that, please understand how that must have assured Moses. The point here is not just that Pharaoh will say no to the demand. Look, he's going to say no because it was the will of God that he should say no. Moses would have grasped here that God is sovereign. When Pharaoh says no, God's not knocked onto his heels. Rather, God is directing these things. Nothing is out of order. See, knowing that God is not only sovereign, but that he's meticulously sovereign is of great value to all who trust in God. And so that's the assurance that comes from, you know, God telling Moses it was he who had hardened Pharaoh's heart. But still, we who read this account, we might have some difficulty with this matter. You know, how can God create rebellion and disobedience in Pharaoh? I mean, is Pharaoh being manipulated against his will? Would Pharaoh have let Israel go had God not hardened his heart? You see, some people, when reading this account, are greatly troubled. I mean, they wonder if God's being unjust. So let's see if we can settle this matter. First, let's see if we can answer the first, probably the most important question. Do you think that Pharaoh was innocent? Or do you think that he was deeply sinful? And and the reason I ask that question is that as we read through this account, we're going to see that there are numerous occasions where we'll read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That is, God is the source of the hardening. And then we will read on a number of other occasions that Pharaoh's heart was hardened or that his heart was hard. Now here the source of hardening is not being described only that it was a hard heart. Pharaoh acted that way. And then there are other examples in the text where we're being told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That is, he acted deliberately to make his heart hard. Okay, let's keep that in mind. And next, let's ask, what is a hard heart? You know, I'm told that in ancient Egyptian religious texts, the heart is the person's basic essence. I mean, that definition is, you know, very similar to the biblical description. But the Egyptian religious texts also say that 
that it is the heart where the person's guilt or innocence is found, along with his motives and the final determination of whether he's righteous or unrighteous. That is, it's in the heart where one determines to be righteous or wicked. So let's get back to the phrase, a hardened heart. So a pliable heart, which would be the opposite of a hardened heart, would be a heart that's willing to change. But a heart that's hard is set, it's unmoved, it's locked into position. And so I ask again, is Pharaoh innocent? Well, no, he's not. He's a man who carries on in the policy of enslaving Israel and subjecting them to bondage. That's the nature of his heart. Then comes God who says, I'm gonna harden your heart, which is to say, God could have punished Pharaoh for his sin immediately, we would not question God's judgment if he had brought Pharaoh to trial instantly, found him guilty, but for his own purpose, God locks Pharaoh in to a hardened heart. In the process of hardening his heart, Pharaoh will act out of his rebellion against God without being given the grace of repentance and transformation. He'll be locked into rebellion in that way. The rebellion will go on until God destroys Egypt's pride and power. But I think there's more. God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart against his own will. God uses a certain means to harden Pharaoh. And here in our text, we're going to find out how. God says, through Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. Unless you release my firstborn son, well, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. I mean, stating things that way, rather than trying to negotiate to find the middle ground, that immediately sets the table. You see, God knows Pharaoh will not let that one lie. He's going to say, if that's how you talk to me and if you want to fight, you've got to fight. That's to say, Moses' authoritative stance before Pharaoh is the means God uses to harden Pharaoh's heart and to make him unpliable to the mere suggestion that he let Israel go. See, I hope you see that God did not act in such a way so that he hardened Pharaoh's heart against his will. That, that's not what our text says. Rather, God would harden Pharaoh's heart by giving him no out outside of total rebellion or total capitulation. And God knew what Pharaoh would do, and in this way, God hardened Pharaoh. And if you will, let this be a lesson for all of us. If you live in pride and unbelief, God may choose not to extend to you or I the grace of repentance. He may harden our hearts. This month, we celebrate Thanksgiving. We rejoice to see what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada. We also offer thanks for the host of faithful supporters who pray, give, and encourage this Bible teaching ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is dependent upon God's supply through you. He is faithful, and His people reflect His faithfulness. In this month of Thanksgiving, we invite your financial support, your consistent generosity, first-time donation or becoming a monthly partner enables this ministry to consistently and faithfully proclaim God's Word across Canada. Thank you for the important role you play in ministry. May your heart and home be filled with joy this Thanksgiving. May your soul know the delight of God's release from sin, guilt, and burden. For more information, to receive your Freedom in Christ Scripture calendar, or to offer a gift, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Moses is on his way. The journey of his adventure following the path that God has set out for him has begun. 
And on his way, God has given Moses further details as to what he's to do, as well as giving him assurance that when the fight with Pharaoh is engaged, that God's completely sovereign over all the events. Nothing's out of control, everything is in control. But it's during some time in the journey to Egypt that the wheels seem to fall off and we find Moses stumbles badly. Exodus 4, 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. See, Moses and his wife Zipporah are again stopping for the night, but this night is different. The Lord, Yahweh met Moses and was about to put him to death. And we have to imagine that that God's filled with wrath because of some state that he has seen in Moses. And Moses will not be allowed to get away with it. And I have to imagine here that Moses had his own version of a hard heart. We've already seen Moses complaining to God that he didn't want to be the one that would lead Israel out of Egypt. I mean, putting Moses' complaints into one sentence, Moses said, find someone else. But what's the matter here? And the answer has to lie in the fact that in order to save Moses' life, Zipporah circumcises their son, and the anger of the Lord is assuaged. And the casual reader might then simply assume since Moses had been so long out of Egypt and since the son was born sometime after he had lived in Midian, that the practice of circumcision that was mandated for Abraham as descendants had long since been forgotten. You know, in Genesis 17, verse 14, we hear God speaking to Abraham. Any circumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. But here the matter gets complicated. I mean, many people groups in the ancient Middle East actually practiced circumcision. And from all that I understand, the Midianites were one of those people. They would have circumcised their young men. Again, from what I read, it also seems to me that even the Egyptians practiced circumcision, except in their case, It was what can be called a partial circumcision. I mean, that practice involved only cutting a small amount of the foreskin of the penis rather than all of the foreskin. And that partial circumcision was considered illegitimate by the Israelites. Now, of course, we can't say with any assurance, but it is possible that Moses simply followed the Egyptian formula when circumcising his son. And that may also have been a surprise to Zipporah, who, as we know, is the daughter of the priest of Midian. Zipporah would never have known the partial circumcision that Moses had performed. I mean, given what we read in this chapter, we might also assume that she was displeased with Moses because of it. And I'll take it further and suggest that this might also have been the cause of some conflict between the two of them. And it may also have been that in some ways, Moses was unwilling to let go of his Egyptian past. I mean, after all, there have been some pride that at one time he belonged to Egyptian nobility. And so it seems likely to me that Moses followed the traditions of Egypt, at least some of those traditions, into his family life. But now as Moses was on the way to fulfill God's purpose in his life, no trace of commitment to the Egyptian spiritual practices would be permitted. Moses was going to learn that God's very first command was that he would have no other gods that were allowed to remain in the presence of the God of Israel. The God of Israel is an exclusive God. He he does not recommend obedience. He demands it. 
Now, look, we don't know how God confronted Moses so that Moses stood on the threshold of death. It's been pointed out this is now the second time that a woman saves Moses' life. I mean, the first time it was his mother and his sister. This time it's his wife. She knows what's going on. She takes a flint knife, which must have, you know, been among their baggage, and she pulls down the boy's pants, and she circumcises him on the spot. But she's not done. She says, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And does she mean that because the act of needing to circumcise the boy twice was utterly unacceptable to her? I mean, was she saying, you've made our son suffer much more than was necessary because of your commitment to Egyptian practices? Now, as to whether Moses himself was circumcised as a Hebrew or as an Egyptian, the answer is plain. Since circumcision happened on the eighth day, And since Moses was three months old by the time they put him in a basket, we rightly assume that he was circumcised as a Hebrew. And as he was growing up, was that the cause of some shame? Well, possibly. Oh, we just don't know. But we do know that God would have also demanded Moses to be circumcised had he not been circumcised. I mean, the matter on the road to Egypt, that's a simple matter. Either your family will be under the covenant of God or you're not going to be my deliverer. I demand obedience to my command, especially among those whom I've called to lead my people. You have resisted my call, and now is the time of accounting. But still, we have to answer what Zipporah meant when she said, I mean, you're a bridegroom of blood. I mean, surely she's not reacting to the physical act of circumcision. I mean, she doesn't find that to be unacceptable. I mean, one commentator suggests she might be, you know, speaking to Gershom, her son, rather than to Moses. I mean, this translator suggests that the best translation of this passage is, surely you are a blood relative to me now that you have been circumcised. But she, I think, said these words to Moses. I think she said, you are a husband bound now in the blood covenant. I mean, the book of Ephesians teaches us that husbands are to be the head of their wives. They're to take spiritual leadership in the home. You know, at the very least, for years now, Moses has not done that, and now he's exposed. He's been a failure in his home. And so we meet Moses on his way to do that which God has called him to do, and we find that he's been a failure. So we read to the end of Exodus chapter 4, verses 27 to 31. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The scene now shifts from Moses having narrowly escaped death to God speaking to his older brother Aaron. We've already seen that Aaron in some fashion has left Egypt and now God speaks to him and tells him where to go so that he might meet his brother. And we're reminded here that the unique partnership between them came about because Moses had insisted that he was slow of speech and that when the heat was on, I mean, he would be made to look a fool. Aaron is God's solution to Moses' lack of faith. And so the, you know, the long-awaited reunion takes place. Our passage says that they met at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. I mean, that little detail tells me that wherever Moses had been in Midian, he's on his way to Egypt. He's traveling in a direction that would take him past Mount Sinai a second time. And that's an appropriate place for the two men to meet. 
It's here at this mountain that God had first met Moses when Moses received his call. And of course, after Israel came out of Egypt, this would be the place again where the entire nation would come. The team that would speak to Pharaoh were also assembled at this holy mountain. It had been 40 years since the two brothers had seen each other. There have been so much to talk about, so much weeping and so many questions that they would have asked each other about their experience since they had last seen each other. But the important part of all of this is that both men realized why the reunion was occurring. Verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs he had commanded him to do. I imagine the two of them decided on a strategy. Aaron would have asked, what exactly do you want me to speak? And with that, the two men were ready. Moses didn't tell us all the details of how they arrived in Egypt, but arrived they did. And as God had directed him, Moses performed his first action. He called the elders of Israel together. He told them everything God had told him to do. And Aaron did the three signs. And then Moses told them that now, in a short period of time, they would witness God's great deliverance. They as a nation were on the way to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And amazingly, our text says, the people believed. And that must mean more than that just the elders believed. It must have been that the elders had a way of communicating with the entire nation. The word was being passed on. God had come to deliver them. And the reaction was so much different from the time when Moses had been asked, who appointed you a judge? Now this time, they would believe that God had called him to lead and they would be delivered. The mission begins. Yeah, Moses stumbled out of the gate, but now he was in Egypt. And just like God had said, Israel would believe. The game was on and Moses would find he's winning the race. Thanks, John. You know, you began today by talking about how we all fail at times. Moses failed, and yet that wasn't the end of it. Perhaps a word for those who have failed or fallen and don't believe God can redeem them. Well, if you failed and you don't believe God can redeem you, no doubt there are reasons why that you think that. But let me say this, you don't think that because that's what God has said. So my first thing is, who are you listening to? your feelings, the accusations of others, Satan himself? Or will you listen to God who says, I'm not done with you. I will take your sins and hide them and make you new. Listen to God. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every year, Back to the Bible Canada releases an annual scripture reading calendar. This is our most requested Bible resource. Well, the time has come to request your 2023 scripture calendar today with the theme, Freedom in Christ. Each month contains beautiful, thoughtfully selected images, inspirational Bible verses, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and a Bible reading plan that will help you read through the entire Bible in one year. We pray this calendar will inspire, keep you in the Word every day, and remind you of just how blessed we are to live freely in Christ. So for the month of October, request your copy of Freedom in Christ. But hurry, quantities are limited. 
to request your free copy, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.